0: All right, hello everyone, how we doing? Good, it looks like the sound is, up. new person here. Looks like the sound is good, all right. Um, and let's, let's begin. Um, so today we're going to be um, doing the, the first day on Ibsen. Um, this is the last full week, uh, next Monday is our last class, and so what we're going to talk about to start is um, talk about some housekeeping things we need to do for this last week, uh, then what the plan is for this week and also for the exam. Um, so I think you guys are the Saturday, the last day of exam day uh, of, of the exams, and um what am I going to say? Oh, I have the exam worksheet finished. I I'm, I'm, think I'm going to update it during this week, but I'll post it into the content folder area. I, I think I've done that already, but I'll just check after this to make sure. Uh, how it's going to work is, so we'll start with the exam, and as it's pretty obvious now, there's going to be three parts to cover in the two hours. The first part is kind of definitions. It's pretty quick, like, what is Kabuki? What is an Alexandrine? What is, um, you know, what's Sturmendrong? Um, and, and you just answer in a sentence. The second part is, requires you to answer two questions with paragraph length responses and you begin in 11 or 12, I'm giving you in the worksheet. 11 or 12... Um, yes, I'm going to give you the terms ahead of time. They're going to be on the... They're going to be on the worksheet that's... either I either posted it or I'm going to post it after class. Um, but anyway... Uh, so there's going to be 11 or 12 questions that I'm going to give you for a paragraph response. And you're going to have to pick two of them on the day. You're going to be given... Four or five of these questions on the day, and you have to pick two of them. I'm going to give you 12 out of those 12, 11 or 12. You're going to get four on the actual day of the exam, and then you're going to have to answer two of them. So while you can prepare everything in advance, um, you know that's that's going to be the limits, right? You can prepare everything in advance, but you're only going to um, you're only going to have four from which to select two. The last thing is part three is a, a five to six paragraph essay. Uh, this should take up most of the exam time. Um, and in this section you are going to look at um excuse me, uh made a little mistake here. what you're going to be looking at is one you're going to be looking at uh, about three questions and you're going to answer one of them in a five to six paragraph essay the worksheet is going to give you five questions and from those five three are going to be on the the actual essay uh, excuse me on the actual exam so sorry just a little problem I'm having with the computer here, one second. Okay, so three three of those are gonna be on the exam and then you select one to write. So you could prepare all five. Um, yes, yeah, you, you can you can use open notes with this. Um, but yeah, the idea is that you wanna, yeah, you, you could be, uh, you can have open notes and then that'll be your, your prep for it. Um, and then, yeah, sorry, uh, losing my, uh, losing track of where I was. Anyway, so you'll get three questions, answer one in a five to six paragraph essay. I'm going to, if I haven't posted this, I'm going to post it after. Um, I'm going to repost it anyway, just because um, there's a, there is actually a little error in one of the, the questions. So I'm just going to change that and post it. So look at the most recent post for your prep. Um, there should be plenty of time to do this. This exam isn't meant to trick you. It's more of a demonstration. How to prepare for it? Well, first of all, just learn the terms. If you don't know them already, they're, they're terms we've covered. Um, secondly, if with part two, um, I would say uh, have something to say, like at least prepare a sentence on each of the eleven or twelve questions um, so that you could talk about it. Now, by just by how the numbers work, um, you don't actually have to do this for each one, right? So if there's you know, four or five um, essay options for part two, right, paragraph options, and you're only doing two of them, um, you can select at least two of the 11 or 12 questions that you just never wanna work on, that are just look too complicated or you're not interested in. Um, However, since you don't know which one of these questions are going to be selected for the exam and since it's going to be different between the two classes, you do want to be ready for for all of them all right and then lastly, with part three, um, I would have a thesis and some bullet points ready for for this all right and so since you're not going to have you could use notes but you're not going to have the plays uh in front of you, obviously, or you know since um since the time is limited, it's, it's you know, you could open the plays, but it, it might be difficult to, um, to, without prep, locate the information you need. And so in this, you might want to do bullet points and a few uh, theses rather, and a few key bullet points for each of these questions. And again, there's probably one question that you're not, maybe not comfortable with. Don't worry about that. One question because just by the way, the numbers break down, you're not going to be forced to answer it. All right? The other way of prepping is, um, I sent out this link. I definitely sent this link out is for I, I've turned all of our recordings and class times into a podcast. So if you need a refresher on any of this, you can just listen to our class on it. It's all been recorded. There's a few of the recordings that are a little rough. Sometimes the the actual garageband cut off. Um, you know, there, there's some long pauses, but yeah, that's going to be there as well. And so that link has already been sent out to you guys. Um, what else am I going to say? So that that's the stuff with the exams. Any question about that? okay good well hopefully that's clear uh and in terms of the essay due on monday at this point you really should have picked a topic and at least found one resource you want to use the the one resource is um you know should be informing at least what your angle is on the paper you are going to take um and you should really be kind of, in, within these next few days, finding those other resources so you have time to read them and respond to them. Um, yeah, so any, any questions about the uh, the research paper?
1: Um, how long should it be about?
0: It is, what did I what does it say, six to eight pages?
1: Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: okay good 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 um i'm also gonna if people need time to um uh, make up finished unfinished work or um want to review things for the exam we'll make some time available next week during the during study week to uh to talk about that type of thing um i think maybe we can make i can make like, our class time available on uh, Wednesday. And does anybody know, does does exam... The exams begin on Friday of the week after this? Or do they start on Saturday? Does anybody know?
1: I think they actually start Monday, but I'm
0: not positive. Okay, so they start... Internet's a little funky today. So they start a week after they start two weeks from today. Okay. So go ahead. Liana? Oh, yeah, I was gonna say yeah, two weeks from today. Yeah. Okay. Um so let's let's see if we can make the the class times on Wednesday and Friday available. Um I'll just have I'll send out a link and I'll have this, this open. Um, And if anybody has any questions or wants to do, wants to kind of review some of their potential answers for the exam, you can let me know. You could just hop in and talk to me. Okay, great. Um, So let's get on to Ibsen and Hedda Gabler. Um, What do you guys, what is the initial responses to that play? What do you guys think of it? To start,
1: it kind of reminded me of like the pre internet version of trolling, if that makes sense. It's the idea that you are deeply unhappy with your life, so everyone around you must be unhappy too. Um, That was, I think, the biggest thing that I I took away from this one. (laughs)
0: okay so I'm guessing because Hedda is unhappy you think she's trying to make other people unhappy
1: basically okay
0: did anybody else have a, a different rating or a similar rating oh Sonya here she's a miserable person okay Any headed defenders? Anybody have, um, anybody have a, a kind of justification or a reason why Hedda might be acting as she does? Yeah. She's
1: just someone who's deeply unhappy with mm. everything in her life, it feels like. Mm-hmm. um, Like, the, the nice house that her new husband bought specifically for her, she hates. And she claims that, like, the six-month honeymoon that they took, which, like, she returns with all this stuff. Like, it, she says it was boring. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like someone who is deeply unsatisfied with the way that their life is going and so in order to make themselves feel better they kind of push that miserableness on everyone else
0: okay yeah so there's she's she's kind of unhappy and she wants to to push that unhappiness on other people um and then we have sonia here saying that she's feeling stuck and kind of craving freedom um but let, actually let's take a look at i at uh Somebody. Let's take a look at what, what you said, Rachel, the idea of um, this six-month honeymoon where she gets all this stuff she found boring. But why does she find it boring? What is that, what's going on in that extended honeymoon?
1: I think she finds it boring because she's not actually, like, she doesn't actually love the man she just married, so she doesn't have any interest in any of it because it's all just kind of like a... Like she's like she's marrying this guy because she feels like otherwise she won't ever get married and so it's not really like and for any excitement you know mm-hmm. like she's like she's doing it to do it okay i think she also or not she but like it's mentioned at the beginning of the play that her husband just became a doctor um mm-hmm. while they were on the honeymoon So, if you think about how long a doctorate takes, there's a good chance that the entire honeymoon was spent, like, with him studying and fulfilling, like, academic um, assignments. Mm -hmm. So, that also probably didn't help.
0: Yeah, she mentions that, right? That he spent the whole time, like, in libraries collecting things. Uh, And it's it's for his uh, area of research was... I'm trying to remember it now, but it, it even sounds like super boring. It was like um, like medieval domestic items or something, which I don't think in actuality is, is boring, but it's it's highly specialized. Right. Um, And so this this six month vacation that she was working th- that they w- went on really was about him going to libraries and collecting information on something that only, you know, a a specialist in a very particular area of a very particular time period would be interested in. So, you know, we we have that. Um, And then this idea of she, she married him. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit in act one, because I want to do a presentation kind of on um, the, the things that were going on in theater at this time, and why Ibsen's important. But to, to take this conversation forward, because I think it's going to be going to shape this week. What is her background? Who is she the daughter of?
1: She's the daughter of some important military guy. Mm-hmm. I think he's either like a general or like an admirable or something.
0: Admiral. Admiral. Mm-hmm.
1: Admiral. Well, <laughs> I can talk today. Yeah. Yeah. One of those.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he's, a, I believe he's a general and the the description of him is how would you describe how would you describe the description that's given of him
1: uh I well he was like an important general so oh. she cre- she kind of grew up um Basically, like in the lap of luxury, um, so she's used to that kind of like high end, high class mm-hmm. sort of a lifestyle.
0: Yeah, yeah. So he's high class. He's also like a romantic figure, right? Like proud on a horse, and she's also described when she was with him as as riding on a horse um, with a with a cap on, and there's this kind of he. And, um, her as his daughter are kind of given this romantic description, romantic in the way we've been talking about, right? In this kind of, um, Napoleon, uh, uh, nationalistic romantic kind of thing. Um, it feels almost like her father would have belonged in the world of the Prince of Hamburg. That's, that's the impression I got. It's a very brief description of her father. Um but she apparently was of that world. And it's interesting that the play is called Hedda Gabler, Gabler being her father's name, right? Her her maiden name and not Hedda Tesman, which is her name when we meet her at the beginning of the play. And I I think that part of our conflict this week in trying to understand this play is to, to fully understand why is this play called Hedda Gabler and not Hedda Tesman, right? Why is Ibsen... Um why is Ibsen giving us that?
1: Can I make a guess?
0: No. Of course, yeah, go for it.
1: Okay. <laughs> um, so the fact that she goes by her maiden name as opposed to her husband's name, I feel like maybe plays into um the idea of like the military versus academia of the time. Mm-hmm. Like one um that as a she has more kind of status as a general's daughter versus a doctor's wife. Mm-hmm. Um and then it also kind of sets her up as a very like independent character almost. Mm-hmm. Kind of yeah. Yeah. That's all I got.
0: Yeah. I, I would just say that she she isn't going by her father's name, her maiden name. Um she's still going by Hedda Tasman. Uh it's it's just the play is titled with her maiden name right so it's not like she's going around calling herself head of she's you know she's mrs tesman um but i i do think but re- regarding the actual uh kind of justification you gave um the the idea of status i think is important um and i think maybe more important than than independence um independence for people and and for women is very important in ibsen for anybody here who's read uh, doll's house I i have a, i think that i asked you guys this last week and nobody had read a doll's house or seen it is that true
1: i have not seen okay. or read it
0: yeah well that that that's what that play is about uh, we're going to talk i'm going to talk a little bit about this But in terms of, I want to jump into the kind of the historical stuff, um, just because I think it'll help a little bit. Uh, But um, what I was going to say, but for this, for the beginning of this week, um, thinking about that name, that name Hedda Gabler, um, thinking about the, what you brought up, Rachel, this sort of idea of status, of what does it mean to be an academic's. Wife, what does it mean to be the you know the kin of a general right um, how how her father, in that very brief moment, um, and I think it's the aunt is talking about it i don't think even she is talking about it um how he's conceived, and then why is she doing the things she's doing right she's not just doing things to do them, um, but she does a number of destructive very destructive things or encourages destructive things, for what end? What is she getting out of that, right? What does she want? And I think those are things to, to consider as we're going forward. But if anybody has any other comments, go for it now. If not, I'm gonna get, well, while you're making those comments, I'm gonna get the, uh, this thing ready, this presentation Just so we could talk a little bit more about some of the sources of this. And as usual, if anybody has anything to say, um, just interrupt me uh, because I have the the presentation on. Okay. You guys can see that, right? Yes. Okay, good. So, talking about naturalism to realism. naturalism and the theater so naturalism is a a movement in the throughout the 19th century starts in the early 19th century and then in was it 1859 when origin of species is published it gets a lot of uh, push there what naturalism says is it's a philosophy that only natural laws operate the universe so this excludes the idyllic which is ideals are like things um things not in this world, like the perfect triangle. And it also excludes the spiritual. So, you know, religion starts to take a backseat as an explanatory engine of the universe. Not to say that people who are involved in naturalism aren't religious. Actually, um, Darwin was, was very religious, and even he writes about God in The Origin of the Species, if you ever read it. It kind of ends talking about God's universe. However, we are not including the spiritual or the religious when we are giving causal explanations of the world. Um, Yeah, so everything in nature can be reduced to natural causes. Only science and philosophy can explain nature. The supernatural does not exist. Either it doesn't exist in an atheistic sense or it doesn't exist in a causal sense. Uh, You know, and um, what this starts much earlier than Darwin. As you could see here, here's a piece of art inspired by naturalism where you could see the the scenery, the world kind of governing the, the, the lives of the people here. And there's, you know, in naturalistic art, like John Constable, who um, a bunch of his artwork is, is in America. If you go down to New York, there's a lot of it in the Met and I think in the Frick as well. But anyway, um, there's also a lot more stress on the natural landscape and the natural world um, and with Darwin, what ends up happening when when Darwin comes into the the fray and he publishes the Origin of Species, you now have the um the uh, you have evolution as an explanatory mechanism for human life uh now Darwin isn't the first positor of evolution. Lamarck also talked about evolution earlier on. However, with with Darwin, first of all, he has a more convincing case. But also, Darwin tells us that the people we are are shaped by um, our need to survive in the world. So the environment literally shapes who we are. Physically, we are different in a different form because of the environment we find ourselves in. Um, This does a lot for uh, this. This makes a big mess of things because what religion had posited, most religions had posited was that humanity is the telos of the universe. Telos is the, uh, the final cause of something, the reason for something. So the reason for life, the reason for the universe is the making of humankind. And Darwin comes along and says, no, humankind is sort of an accident of life in a particular circumstance, and humans will just evolve into something else as, you know, as the environment changes. So we're a product of the environment. We are not the reason for the environment. Uh, This was the initial reason why Darwin was so hated. It wasn't because of, like, the Earth is 6,000 years old or something like that. That came along, like, in the 20th century, much later. The initial reason was that environment suddenly became the factor that shapes people not the other way around so how this uh, gets into the theater well here is a picture of emile zola a french writer um he was a big writer who big writer uh <laughs> he was a famous uh, playwright and novelist who really worked uh, his work ba- was based on the assumptions of naturalism environment is all um there's a major theater journal titled Realism that emerges in the 1850s, as it wrote there, that is dealing with a lot of these issues that he contributes to. And for him, the theater is a place to explore a, the scientific hypothesis or scientific hypotheses. Uh, and what that means is that he'll have an idea and then he'll explore it. Like, um, you know, uh, uh, how does the environment shape um, a person's psyche? And then explore that in a play. And, you know, they're very interested in hereditary and environmental factors and how they affect individuals. Um, This becomes very important in in plays of Ibsen. For example, Ghosts. Ghost in Ibsen is about the main character um, is suffering from a venereal disease that he inherits from his father. So his father gets a venereal disease, has sex with his mother, gives birth to this, this... this child. And, um, as a young man, his brain is now deteriorating. And so ghosts is affected. This, this Ibsen play, um, is affected by these ideas of how, how, um, inheritance, genetic inheritance, they didn't know genes back then, but they understood that the actions of the the parents affects what the child is like, how that factors into the social world. And Zola is doing that before Ibsen and it affects Ibsen. Um and so that's a big thing. And that ends up leading to realism. Right. Uh it, it's not quite realism yet. Naturalism is a little different. It's it's far more concerned with kind of mechanization of nature. Than, than realism, which is just how life is. Realism is probably a, a wider tent than naturalism, but naturalism sets the stage, so to speak, for a lot of these these things. So what ends up happening also at the same time in the middle of the nineteenth century is there's a change in the way theater is done. Alright. Um so we have a few genres, and then we'll talk about those genres in connection with the way theater is done and that's the well-made play and the problem play we'll start with the well-made play the well-made play is um inspired by french neoclassicalism which we talked about so inspired by the 17th century takes off really in the 18th century is super popular in the 19th century a lot of melodramas are also well-made plays it's not one or the other um eugene scribe is like the most important he wrote something like 300 plays i think he was mentioned last week but the, the well-made play has these factors. Um, it starts with um, careful exposition, telling the audience what the situation is, usually one or more secrets to be revealed later. You get to see this in Hedda Gabler, right? The, the beginning of this play is the aunt talking to the maid about the marriage and about the PhD and all this stuff. Um, and so the, the exposition, they, they sort of set the stage with the exposition. Um, this becomes known as the maid scene. Later on, the exposition scene, uh, surprises to be revealed at a critical moment. Um, this also is something it shares in common with melodrama. Um, slowly building suspense, sustained by cliffhanger or misplaced papers, jewelry, etc. This is um, this we could see in in Hedda Gabler, the misplaced manuscript, right? Builds suspense as to what's going to happen. Um, a climax occurs in which the secrets are revealed and the denon uh, the the end gives the drama a resolution in which all the loose ends are tied up uh the denoma it's called and that is when um when everything has when the the cliffhanger has has happened when the pistol has fired the denoma is the Kind of closing action in which all the loose ends are collected together and explanations as to what the secrets are are given. Um, typically, the well-made play is a lot happier than Hedda Gabler. They're not always tragic; mostly, they're not tragic. There's tragic ends to characters, but they're, they're not really great people. Um, Hedda and a lot of these these plays throw them on their head. Now, another type of play. That also borrows from the um, the well-made play and the melodrama. And it's important to, to note that the melodrama, the well-made play, and the problem play are not all mutually exclusive. They're, they're genres that overlap with each other. And sometimes, a pro- very often actually, a problem play can be a well-made play and can also be melodramatic. These are just different... Um, we could say these three types highlight different aspects of something uh but anyway problem play here's the most famous writer of them Alexandre dumas phil phil just means son he was the son of the more famous alexander dumas who wrote uh, les miserables so he's his child um and he was known for writing problem plays that was his contribution to literature and these are plays that we call them social problem plays today and they discuss social issues um and they start using realism because they are interested in real world problems. We could see that melodrama is sort of a precursor slash competitor with the problem play in the sense that um, the melodrama and even under the glass light, which we read, does highlight social problems. We saw that with the court scene, right, where there's a a, um, a black man who was being sort of unfairly treated it's it's inferred that it's because of his race there's an immigrant who's unfairly treated it's inferred because he's an immigrant um these these are social problems that the melodrama is highlighting but what the social problem play highlights more directly is the the problems in society but it uses kind of a thesis so it argues a, a point like um like, poverty is caused by X, Y, or Z. And then the play reveals this to be true throughout the action of it. Right, That's what um, Alexander Dumas revealed uh, in, in his work. Um, the uh, English-speaking playwright, the, the I, he's Irish, but known, known as a British playwright, uh, George Bernard Shaw was the person who really took the problem play to its heights and if we were to do uh, if you were to do another semester of me with theater and we were to do like theater history 2 from 1890 to hamilton um which is a class i'd love to teach but we're we're not going to be able to do that uh unfortunately um we would probably start with george bernard shaw because his impact on theater is is pretty great um Great in both in terms of quality and also in terms of size. And uh, if you think of My Fair Lady it is based on his play Pygmalion, there's a problem play where we argue that, I mean, Higgins, Henry Higgins, the main character, comes out and argues um, the quality of a person is informed by their society. And we can train anyone to be part of any society. And the play itself is trying to prove that thesis to show why that might be right or what pro- parts of that thesis might be wrong. Um, and, that's, and and My Fair Lady does the same thing, but it's, it's less interested in, in kind of the, the social critique. It's, it's lighter on the social critique, um, but that's, that's an example of uh, the type of thesis that might be argued in one of these plays. So those are the types of plays that are coming out. Now, in terms of acting style, we have at the same time, the right man for the right type of theater that's going on. And that man is George II, Duke of Saxe-Meiningen. Meiningen Meiningen is a duchy in Germany in the former um, Holy Roman Empire. This is before the unification of Germany. Um, it's, I think even before the unification of Prussia of, of what was, what became known as like, I think North, the North German States, but anyway, so he, it has a, um, the duchy itself has an official theater troupe and in 1866 theater lover, George II becomes the Duke and he hires director Ludwig kroningig I, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly who was kind of known in theater circles at that time. The Duke remakes over his, his theater troupe. He wants this to be the height of theater in Europe. Um, and because of the Duke's wealth, they didn't need to perform very often. They could just spend a lot of time in rehearsal, months and months in rehearsal, getting everything right. And then once they had that, they can tour Europe. And when they toured Europe, they became very famous for their standard of realism. So you could have rehearsals where you worked on the inner motivation of a character. Why does a character move across the stage here or there? Why does a character do this? Um, what's what is the intention of this character? Um, spear holders, spear carriers, which is a term in theater for like people who just walk on and um, don't don't actually do anything. They don't have lines. Well now these people are going to do something yes you don't have lines but you should still have a character you should still not just be a functionary but you're a fully fleshed out human being even if you don't have any lines Um, people don't just walk places on stage because the director wants them to there's a reason for it and so the blocking the blocking being the, the term for the movement of actors on stage becomes a major consideration of um of the the meiningen theater troupe and they actually in reviews it becomes kind of known for for this kind of beautiful blocking it's, a, it's actually mentioned how kind of um, wonderfully staged everything is another pr- uh, proponent of realism Andre Antonin he uh, he actually saw the Miningen court theater Main In Court Theater, excuse me. Um, and then, inspired by this, he shaped his own theater in 1897 in Paris, and he began to bring this standard of realism to France. Um, it was subscriber-based. There still had censors in, in France. You still had kind of these rules and, and all that stuff. But he had a subscription theater in order to avoid those censors so he can work on and experiment on realism. His most famous staging was... The Russian author Leo Tolstoy's short story, The Power of Darkness, which he hired a a Russian translator to turn to French. Um, And they they worked very closely with the translator to get all the uh, the the small details clear in the translation. He also got real props from Russia and from that time period, which, you know, wasn't that long ago (laughs) in 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 1897. It wasn't that long ago. Tolstoy was still alive, but still he kind of shipped these over, shipped over real costumes, created like I think it takes place on a Russian farm, like as a, a, as real a Russian farm as he could on stage. And he tried to emulate that um, that standard of realism and apparently was very successful. The, the, the theater group breaks apart a little bit later, um, but it introduces into france the standard of realism this also happens in germany and england in germany we have what's known as the free stage also founded right around the same time um a number of critics including otto brahm um helped support this theater and its first production was ibsen's ghosts independent theater society forms in london also by a critic um It's not not its first production, but one of its first productions is also Ibsen's Ghosts. Um, And it's also the first theater to produce George Bernard Shaw. Uh, And so this kind of standard of realism starts going everywhere. And a little later on, we'll talk about Russia, where this became Russian theater artists took this to the next step. And the Moscow Art Theater became like the standard of realism. It started in uh, the Meiningen Court Theater in Germany, um, or in Sachs Meiningen anyway, uh, but it flourished in Russia under the guidance of um, Donchenko as well as the very famous Konstantin, Konstantin Stanislavski, and we'll talk about them later. Um, I always forget about, delsarte so uh francois delsarte he was an opera singer very unhappy with the staginess of opera and he developed a delsarte method to train actors Uh, this is very important because here's really the first kind of regulated method to shape performance now what it did was it was kind of showy it was you would do a, a gesture and that would be your um that would be an external movement that would draw or sponsor or undergird, whatever, these, these inner emotions. Um, and so it didn't remain popular for very long, but it was rediscovered in the 1890s and used in dance. So these motions became part of experimental dance troupes. And so if you, you ever hear about early dancers, some of them know the the Delsart method. Um, but anyway, getting into Ibsen... Uh, So what we have here is the well-made play, very popular, melodrama, very popular, realism becoming a new standard in the hot, cutting-edge theater. Um, Here comes Ibsen. So born in 1828, he uh, leaves to work as an apprentice, leaves his parents at the age of 15 to work as an apprentice in a pharmacy. I don't believe he ever sees his parents again. He gets a young woman pregnant while working at the pharmacy. I think it's the daughter of the pharmacist, though I couldn't find confirmation. Um, he leaves soon after that. She has a son. He never meets the son. Um, but then he moves to the city. I don't, he's not in Bergen yet, but he, he moves away and starts writing plays. His second play is his first play to be staged, which is the burial mound. It wasn't particularly popular. Um, And, um, afterwards he moves to Bergen, which is the second or third most populated city in Norway and starts working for the, the Norse theater there. And here's a picture of Ibsen. Ibsen is always mutton chopped. So if you are a fan of mutton chops, you have found the right man. Now his early successes are, um, not realistic at all. And it's, it's important. You could think of Ibsen as having three stages, his kind of early kind of fantasy plays, his realistic plays, which are his middle period, and his later period is something called symbolism, which we'll talk about. Um, so these earlier plays, the two most popular ones are Brand and then the very, very popular Peer Gint, which made him kind of a celebrity. It was later turned into um, an opera by Edvard Grieg, uh, which is, you know, the, the in the Hall of the Mountain King. If you ever like, type that into YouTube, that's that's drawn from Ibsen's work. Um, these are written in verse, so these are not realistic at all. And um, Brand is a little more realistic. It's about a priest who goes from place to place. It's kind of episodic um, in search of God or meaning. Um, Pier Gint, however, is a folktale. And there's, like, gnomes and dwarves, and this, this one character visits these gnomes, and he visits the mountain king who controls the gnomes living under the mountain. Um, so it's very different from, from uh, Hedda Gabler. Um, but at the end of this period, his kind of fantasy-verse period, he moves to Munich. Here in Munich, he starts writing realistic plays affected by kind of the, the social problem plays. This first one in 1877 is The Pillars of Society and then in 1879 he writes the incredibly famous and still famous today A Doll's House and this is what you're looking at is um a the the title page of the first completed copy of A Doll's House um Ghosts follows in 1881 Doll's House Ghosts they're critical of bourgeois society so that's what he's doing here. Um, the Social Problem Plays, you know, Doll's House is talking about gender roles, right? It's it's a, it's a play where at the end, the the main female character says, because of the kind of gender roles that society places on us, I'm not really a wife to you, and you're not really a husband to me, and I'm not really a mother to our children. I have to leave and find myself and find my own identity apart from you before i can actually be a real person accepting these roles and it was a very famous play for that reason very controversial actually the german language version of it had a an ending ending where um nora and tolvault the the male and female character um get together they just they they just stay together. <laughs> it's really weird to read. Um, but that's how controversial it was. You know, people required a different ending. Um, but you could see here the effect of naturalism on this type of work. Society made Nora this person, right? She can't be an authentic person because she is made by society. However, we could also see the effect of kind of realism and the importance of depth of character. Nora can be a real person. There, You know, she has an incredibly deep and rich character that can develop further um, once we're able to kind of critique bourgeois norms or, or, or give freedom within them, whatever it is. And so it's it's both informed by naturalism and I would say kind of a post-naturalism realism in which it's not just, you know, Society isn't just mechanized, and and there you go. Okay. Um, I'll mention briefly, I didn't make a slide about this, but am I still here? Yep, there I am. Um, But I will mention briefly the the symbolist period of Ibsen. So this is much later in his life, uh, or, you know, a a little bit later, in which his plays take on a kind of mystical feeling um the most famous of them is the master builder and these plays, in part could be realistic but the characters tend to talk in sort of airy ways symbols are put on stage directly so um you know like a uh, in the master builder like an architectural design that this master architect uh, Solness is working on um, becomes a symbol for, um, for 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 fantasies that have no grounding in the real world. Right, uh, that that becomes a symbol, and that's just on stage. And these plays are very strange. They're informed by a competition between Ibsen and another playwright, who we would definitely do if we had more time, August Strindberg. And Strindberg also kind of had a similar trajectory. He had a sort of social commentary plays like The Father and Miss Julie. Um, I think there's a version of Miss Julie starring Colin Farth on uh, on Netflix, but I'm not sure. And anyway, but his later plays are... There is. There is, okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how good it is. Um, I think Jessica Chastain plays the title character, but it's, it's a trip. I
1: thought it was pretty good. Oh, okay. I've never read the play, so
0: I'm not yeah. too well. That's Strindberg, and that's middle Strindberg, and it's it's pretty. I mean, if you think Hedda is dark, Miss Julie's darker. Um, but his later work, like a dream play, uh, a ghost sonata, which I love, I love that play. That's one of my favorites. I can't justify teaching it in in this class because we don't have enough time. But it's a gorgeous play, and his other play, um, To Damascus are really informed by dreams and surrealism and so kind of symbolism and surrealism start to come out around this time and Ibsen and Strindberg are in competition and actually Ibsen had a picture a portrait of Strindberg over his desk so he could look at him and and like feel the verve of competition as he was writing um, and yeah and so that's kind of what's going on and that's realism, as it's touching on the next phase, the phase that this class doesn't go to, which is surrealism, symbolism, and kind of the stuff that you know becomes expressionism, and becomes really brand new ways of exploring, uh, exploring theater and and performance generally. And so, how we end then in this class. With realism is recognizing that realism itself is an experiment. The realism itself was the avant-garde, cutting edge of theater, and that the responses to realism are avant-garde responses to an avant-garde mo- movement that became um, middle class. I think that's what they would say. I sort of hate that sort of discourse, but that that is what's going on, uh, and so when we come back for Wednesday um, we're going to talk about you know especially focus on the first two acts of, of Hedda um, and we're going to think about some of these things like how does her environment this kind of um, military nationalistic romantic environment in which she was brought up shape who she is and inform the, the decision she makes Um and That's it. And I'll, I'll keep this line open, uh, for if anybody wants to meet for office hours. Um, I do have a call I have to be on at two, so I'm not going to be, give you the full hour, but this will be open for until five to two, but otherwise you are free to go. And I will, um, I will talk to you then if anybody has trouble accessing the podcast, uh, let me know. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.